A definition and a short history of Freemasonry. My friend, at the beginning of your instruction in Masonry, it is proper to give to you, as best we can, a short definition of Freemasonry. What is this mysterious art we call Freemasonry? There have been a great number of definitions offered, but one of the simplest and most direct is used by our English brethren. Quote, Freemasonry is a beautiful system of morality, veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols. End quote. The idea of teaching by symbols and allegories is not new. All great teachers have more or less followed this system. Albert Pike, a great Masonic scholar and writer, says, quote, Freemasonry is the subjugation of the human that is in man by the divine, the conquest of the appetites and passions by the moral sense and reason, a continued effort, struggle, and warfare of the spiritual against the material and sensual. Of course, these definitions need a great deal of explaining, yet masonry is, when clearly understood, a great worldwide system of emancipation, in that it teaches its initiates to liberate themselves from the slavery of all forms of ancient superstitions, obsolete creeds, and beliefs that do violence to the reasoning faculties of every intelligent, enlightened, and untrammeled human mind. Freemasonry is a system of morality by the practice of which its members may advance their spiritual interest, but it is definitely erroneous to suppose that Freemasonry is a system of religion. It is but the handmaiden of religion, although it largely and effectually illustrates one great branch of it, the practice of virtue. The system of morality to which we have just referred is that which every Mason is bound to profess and practice. If it includes principles with which he was familiar before he became a Mason, he will nevertheless find these presented here in new ways and under forms different from those with which he has previously familiar. If it includes principles with which he was familiar before he became a Mason, he will nevertheless find these presented here in new ways and under forms different from those with which he was previously familiar. If he does not find in Masonic teachings anything surprisingly new, he should remember that in many respects at least there is nothing new under the sun, and that the essence of morality is to be found in the utter simplicity, though not the ease, of its requirements. Freemasonry is neither a religion, a political organization, nor a social club. It interferes with none of these. It has for its foundation the basic principles of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. It teaches a belief in a supreme being, in the immortality of the soul, and that the holy book 
is the inestimable gift of God to man as the rule and guide for his faith and practice. It is a fraternity or brotherhood pledge to the building of character, thoughts, words, motives, and deeds being the materials used. It strives to teach man the duty he owes to God, his country, his neighbor, and himself. It inculcates the practice of virtue and morality in daily conduct, and it conveys its teachings through ceremonies and symbols. During almost every period of human history, men have set themselves apart from their fellows in groups or clans. In many of these groups, the members were bound by secrets known only to those selected for membership. In the primitive eras of man's existence, the idea seems to have developed that group protection would afford the greatest security against the harsh forces of nature and the evil actions of man, that such groups secure sympathy, support, and protection for those bound of union was made in a common cause. Early Freemasonry doubtless originated out of similar causes. There are no precise historical records now available to establish the first origin of Masonry, and if any ever existed, they are now completely buried in obscurity. However, its philosophy may be traced back to the remote ages where records actually exist in many cases. Its operative symbols are older than the Temple of Solomon or the Law of Moses, and many of its ceremonies have been practiced in the ancient mysteries where Egypt stood as the most enlightened power of the world as then known. The mission of masonry now is to teach men to curb their intemperate passions and to reconcile conflicting interests to extend to nations to extend to nations those principles of humanity benevolence and virtue which should move individuals to overcome the pride of conquest and the pomp of war to destroy local prejudice and unreasonable partialities to banish from the world every source of hatred hostility and ill will and to introduce those voluntary social dealings among men which can preserve peace and good order better than penal laws or political regulations ever could. The advantages which mankind in general reaps from this science of morality are beyond calculation. Its blessings are not confined to any one country, but are diffused by the craft throughout the world. Men of every country, sect, and opinion are united in a strong bond of brotherly affection with the sole object of improving men and blessing mankind. A Mason is at home in every country and with his friends in every lodge. On the level of Masonry, we know only God and man. We know neither rich nor poor, neither royal blood peasant stock. Men of wealth, men of simple toil, philosophers, 
royal heirs, and hard-handed peasants meet here upon the level, upon a common ground as brothers, and God is the father of them all. The Masonic fraternity is in no sense an insurance society. Neither does it pay benefits in case of sickness or death. In a broad and correct sense, it is both educational and charitable. It extends such assistance only as it is willing and able to grant. It knowingly admits none to membership except those who are able to provide for themselves and those dependent upon them. Freemasonry teaches and gives opportunity to its members to inculcate morality, honesty, and integrity in all walks of life. And to worthy members, it renders assistance to a limited extent. It expects its members to obey the moral law and to practice charity towards all mankind. It believes that its members should have a strong desire to aid their fellow creatures. It has its own laws, rules, and regulations, and it requires a strict obedience thereto. Admission into Freemasonry must not be sought through the idle curiosity or because of ambition for honors and the hope of monetary gain or of business or political advancement nor for mercenary or other unworthy motives. The aim of the true Mason is to cultivate a brotherly feeling among men and to help, aid, and assist whomsoever he can. The right to petition for the degrees of ancient craft masonry is rarely denied to any man. But this right goes no further than granting the privilege of petitioning. All who petition are not admitted. Masonry does not solicit members. It wants and welcomes men of high character and integrity who should seek admission entirely on their own free will and accord. A short review of Masonic history may help you to better appreciate the degrees and may induce you to seek a further study of the subject. Masonry is very old. No one knows how old it is. I believe that this subject can be best presented if divided into three periods. The first period begins in the obscure past and comes down to the 12th or 13th century. In this period, Masonic students will find evidence of societies that held the same principles, taught the same lessons, and used similar methods yet they were not called Masonic. That is, they had names other than Masonic lodges. The second period begins with the 12th century and comes down to 1717. It is impossible to find an exact, definite starting point for this middle period, such as may be found for the modern period. But out of the Middle Ages have come certain important manuscripts and lodge records now preserved in the British Museum, the libraries of the Grand Lodges of England and Scotland, and in some private libraries. The third period extends from June 24, 1717, when the first Grand Lodge was organized in London, 
to the present day. This is a period of well-kept records, also of an extensive literature. Each of these periods invites the study of Freemasonry, and the last two offer rich rewards for his labors. In the ancient mysteries of Egypt, India, Persia, Phoenicia, Greece, Rome, Gaul, Britain, and the Orient, you will find many of the principal lessons and the methods with which the Mason of today is familiar. The oldest of all written records of our craft is a manuscript called the Hallowell, or Regis Manuscript, written by some unknown brother in England before 1390, which contains a description of the ancient landmarks of Freemasonry. The document itself shows that over 600 years ago, Freemasonry was already very old. At the time this document was written, all Freemasons were operative, that is, they were workmen engaged on buildings. Such a builder was called a Mason. There were many kinds of Masons, but the evidence indicates that those who were called Freemasons were those builders of a superior type who designed, supervised, and erected the great cathedrals and other marvelous structures of the Gothic style of architecture. These operative Masons designed such buildings as a whole and in each detail, dressed the stone from the quarries and laid it in the walls, set up arches, pillars, columns, and buttresses, laid the floor, built the roof, carved the decorations, made and fitted the stained glass windows, and produced the sculptures. Their work was difficult to perform, called for a high degree of skill and genius, and required a great deal of knowledge of mechanics and geometry, as well as of stone masonry. They were the great artists of the Middle Ages. Where a number of Freemasons worked together on a building over a period of years, they organized a lodge, which probably met in a temporary structure or in one of the rooms of the uncompleted building. Such a lodge was governed by a worshipful master, assisted by wardens. It had a secretary to keep its books, a treasurer to keep and to disperse its funds a charity fund from which to dispense relief to the members in accident, sickness, or distress, and to widows and orphans of Master Masons. It met in stated communications, divided its memberships into grades, admitted members by initiation. In short, it was in all essentials what a Masonic Lodge is today. Completing the work in one community these Freemasons would move to another, setting up their lodges wherever they worked. Other types of Masons were required by law to live and work in the same community year in and year out, and under local restrictions. Some of our Masonic historians believe it may have been because they were free of such restrictions that the Gothic builders were called Freemasons. Such was the fraternity in its operative period, and as such it flourished for generations. Then came a great change in its circumstances. 
The religious reformation of the 16th century ended the extensive ecclesiastical building program, especially in the Gothic style of architecture, resulting in disaster to the building trade. Social conditions underwent a revolution, and laws were changed, bringing about a decline in the craft. In England and Scotland, however, the craft maintained its existence and, as already indicated, very important Masonic manuscripts dating from 1390 to 1693, they're still preserved. These sources indicate that the lodges were then made up of operative masons only. During the Reformation, Euclid's geometry, which had been carefully preserved by the Arabs, was rediscovered and published, thereby making the masons' trade secrets known to all and causing the craft to decline as an operative institution. Owing to these conditions, the Freemasons, to build up their membership, adopted a new practice. They began to accept non-operative members. In the old days, an operative Mason, in the literal sense, could become a member but during the 16th and 17th century, gentlemen with no intention of becoming builders, probably from interest in the ancient customs of the craft, or for many other reasons, applied for admission and were received. Because they were thus accepted, they were called accepted masons. There were a few of these at first, but as time passed, their number increased until by the early part of the 18th century, they outnumbered the operative masons and exerted more influence. As a result of this condition, the craft took a revolutionary step, which set it on a new path of power and importance. On St. John the Baptist Day, June 24, 1717, Four or more old lodges of London and Westminster met in London and organized a grand lodge. This was the beginning of the modern period of Masonic history. Not all the lodges in the British Isles acknowledged the authority of this grand lodge, because it was believed that this body had altered some of the ancient landmarks. However, in 1751, Another Grand Lodge was organized in England. In 1813, these two Grand Lodges adjusted their differences and united under the present organization. Prior to 1751, Grand Lodges had been set up in Scotland, Ireland, and on the European continent. American Lodges, of which the earliest one, with authentic historical records, was the first lodge at Boston in 1733, were under the government of provincial grand lodges, which were ruled by provincial grand masters appointed by the Grand Lodge of England or Scotland or Ireland. After the Revolutionary War, American grand lodges became sovereign and independent. It was questioned at that time whether or not there should be one Grand Lodge for the whole United States. But the wisdom of the craft prevailed, 
and a Grand Lodge was created in each state and was sovereign in its own jurisdiction. Today we have 51 Grand Lodges, one of each state and one for the District of Columbia, plus the Grand Lodges of Prince Hall Masonry in many states. The first lodge in North Carolina is said to have been Solomon's Lodge in Wilmington, which was chartered by Viscount Weymouth, Grand Master of England, in 1735. But the North Carolina records show nothing concerning this lodge. St. John's Lodge No. 1 at Wilmington, which was chartered in 1755 by the Grand Lodge of England, is still in existence. The present Grand Lodge of ancient, free, and accepted Masons of North Carolina was organized December the 11th, 1787. Speculative masonry did not spring full-formed out of nothing in 1717, but gradually evolved from operative masonry and from the distant past. Through an unbroken line, we can trace our origin back to those builders of the early Middle Ages. We are masons too, except that where they erected buildings, we tried to build manhood. Their working tools were transformed into emblems of moral and spiritual laws and forces. Their practices and secrets we have embodied in the royal art of brotherly love, relief, and truth. Their rituals mellowed, enriched, and made more beautiful with the passing of time we employ in the initiating passing, and raising of our candidates. All that was living and permanent in the ancient craft we have preserved, and we use it in the behalf of goodwill, kindliness, charity, and brotherhood among men. Such is our heritage, and as you enter into it, you will discover it inexhaustible in interest and lifelong in appeal a power in your life to enrich, to ennoble, and to inspire you.